According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me this morning in Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. It's been three weeks now since we've been together, so uh, try to remember where we left off. We started a uh, new chapter. Got a little ways into it, but we'll have to take a moment to review and then uh, pick right up again from Luke chapter 11. This is episode 10. Episode number 10 in the uh, last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus. The uh, Another lesson on prayer is what it's titled. Another lesson on prayer, very similar to the lesson that was given as a part of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And so... Uh, some of the parallels here, in fact, a little bit of chapter 6 and a little bit of chapter 7 of the Gospel of Matthew comes in here as it's reviewed in Luke's record, Luke chapter 11. This is one of those passages where harmonizing the Gospels is beneficial to us and helps us to understand the relationship between different passages. Uh, it's also one of those places where the Bible haters, uh, the skeptics, the doubters, and so forth, will find what they think are uh, contradictions or inconsistencies, and they say, see, um, the Bible isn't true, it's human, it's man-made, it's got all these contradictions and so forth. And so, uh, of course, we reject all of that goofiness of thinking. Uh, we, we have no problem understanding parallel texts for what they are and even understanding uh, complementary messages for what they are. Uh, in particular, on an issue as so vital as prayer, he taught... All of his disciples had to pray, his most intimate disciples, his not-so-intimate disciples. Uh, I think that's what we have in the case here. We have, um, well, let's just take a look at it, Luke 11. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, uh, just as John also taught his disciples. And so we have the request being made here by a disciple who is not among the most intimate. Uh, clearly, he's not Peter, Andrew, James, or John, or any of the twelve, or even one of the seventy, you would expect. Uh, this is simply one of the, perhaps one of the newest believers, one of the brand new uh, baby believers, just now becoming a part of Jesus' ministry, becoming a student here, learning how to pray. So, uh, I think it's pretty clear that this is a topic that the Lord addressed many, many times. And uh, if you've ever done any teaching or you've done a, a, a particular lesson and you've repeated it more than once, then uh, never, uh, no matter how many times you teach, it's never the same every single time. There's always going to be something different. If you have teach, uh, talk to Cliff, you teach the book of James here, and then you go down to Sweeney and teach the book of James, and you go out to Horseshoe Bay and you teach the book of James, or you start a Bible class in, in uh, <laughs> Smithville and you teach the book of James. And, and it's okay because every other group has never heard it yet, except for your, your poor wife has to hear it over and over and over again. Well, that's that's what you get for being a pastor's wife. You get real good at the book of James. Anyway, I, I believe, and we're going to pray here in a moment, but I believe that Jesus taught this doctrine of prayer repeatedly, over and over and over again. So I don't have any problem looking at Matthew chapter 6, looking at Matthew chapter 7, looking at Luke chapter 11, and finding the similarities and uh, being relaxed over some of the uh, the differences from time to time when he taught this on different occasions. 
All right. Well, before we do jump into the outline again, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Spirit and prepared to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing we have this morning to assemble together and to receive instruction. Father, most of all, as we examine the aspects of prayer, I pray that we would be diligent to study and examine the details. That, Father, we would reflect upon the, uh, the principles that are contained here so that as we evaluate our own prayer lives, we can uh, identify our uh, deficiencies. We can identify uh, aspects that perhaps we're doing very well or other aspects where maybe we're not doing as well. So, Father, help us to, uh, to examine your scriptures as to what the pattern is here for prayer and that we might make the application for your good pleasure and for the glory of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, speaking of prayer, I understand next week, am I correct, there is no ladies' prayer next week. There's also no shepherding prayer next week. So a couple of uh, aspects you have off on Christmas Eve. We will have, they'll have a class. We will have a class at 10 o'clock. So uh, just if you show up at 6 for the early shepherding prayer, the place will be dark. And if you show up at 9 for ladies' prayer, uh, it won't be dark, but it'll still be lit, it won't be unlocked. Anyway, we'll try to be here by quarter till or so. Make sure the heat's going and uh, have class at uh, at 10. All right. In the outline, there's really six things we're going to get out of this text in verses 1 through 13. Uh, the disciple wants to know how to pray. And so he says to them, uh, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And, uh, of course, you have to be careful as you read it. You don't just rattle it off by memory because your memory is most likely the uh, the Matthew edition where it's our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and, and so forth. We probably have that version of it memorized more so than this one. Well, in the outline, let's... Uh, I don't remember which points I gave. It doesn't matter which points I gave you. I'll just review them all and we'll move on. But under the first point of study... Uh, we, we want to uh, give you the harmony between Matthew and Luke, and so we can establish the context here. This episode seems to duplicate earlier teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. That was way back in Galilean ministry, episode number 17. So if you have your notes from back in those days, uh, also we did give out a packet of notes when we completed the Galilean stage. Uh, it was Galilean ministry, episode 17 was the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In particular, if you want to know the exact parallels, Luke 11, 2 through 4, the prayer pattern that we have here, the model prayer, the baby prayer, I call it, uh, in Luke 11, 2 through 4, is parallel to Matthew 6, 9 through 13. And this is the disciples' prayer outline. The disciples' prayer outline. This is uh, for brand new believers, the, the baby approach to learning how to pray by providing a new believer with a pattern with a template with a uh, a formula not a formula but at least an outline to follow where you make sure that you you cover aspects of prayer uh, once you grow beyond the initial stages where you become more and more comfortable in your prayer life more and more intimate with the father then you will feel less and less uh, restrained or constrained or some other kind of strain you will feel freedom 
to converse with a father who loves you. And to converse, the neat thing about intimate conversations is that they uh, can cover a pretty wide range and they can bounce from one to the next to the next. And the person you're intimate with actually follows you uh, pretty well. And uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed that, where you can complete the other person's sentences or they can complete your sentences and, and aspects like that. I, I believe, I'm convicted, that is a feature of intimacy in communication. And as, uh, as such, I've known people over the years that have been uh, concerned over that. And they felt that, well, you know, in, in prayer, uh, we should be more uh, reverent. We should be more humble. We should be more fearful. We should... Uh, the idea of rambling from topic to topic like that seems to be uh, wrong or, or not not right and so forth. And yet, and I, I understand that. I, I, I'm not going to mock or criticize or dispute the need for reverence in the presence of the throne room of God, clearly. However, that being said, when I search the prayers of Scripture in Old Testament, New Testament alike, when I see... Uh, Paul's prayers in Ephesians, in Romans, and elsewhere, when I see David's prayers in the Psalms, when I see Abraham's prayers recorded in Genesis, I see some, I see some rambling. <laughs> I see some switching from this topic to that topic, or maybe jumping from one to the other and then going back to a previous issue in, uh, in that. And so uh, I, I'm going to stand by some of these definitions where I believe the formula prayer in terms of this outline, in terms of the, what's called the Lord's Prayer, I think it's the, the baby disciples prayer, I, I think that when you have that strict pattern to follow, that you can do that early when you're learning, but then ultimately I think you're going to depart from that when you develop an intimacy with God the Father. And uh, so I'm going to stand by that, at least until uh, I get convicted otherwise in terms of prayer. So that's your parallel under under. Subpoint A, Luke 11, 2 through 4 is parallel to Matthew 6, 9 through 13 in the disciples' prayer outline. In the disciples' prayer outline. Point B then, when you go down to verses 9 through 13 here in Luke, where he says, Ask, uh, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Uh, again, it is a prayer context, but it is a change. And we're going we're gonna to distinguish between the, um, the one aspect of prayer in verses 2 through 4, and this other aspect of prayer in verses 9 through 13. Because when you're simply praying in terms of, follow, uh, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. As far as you go through that, how do you take that and relate it to ask, seek, and knock? What are you asking, what are you seeking, and what are you knocking in uh, that pattern prayer, in that outline prayer, the disciples' prayer outline? So we're going to break down for you the distinction between uh, baby prayers, adolescent prayers, and mature prayers. And this chapter helps us to do that. Because this chapter, with a parable put in between here, with a parable that uh, talks about knocking on your neighbor's door at midnight, uh, we're going to see where... Uh, that development of maturity comes in in the process of these prayers. Okay. Because this chapter here gives us that outline. Point C then, sub point C, Luke's account does not contradict Matthew's 
Sermon on the Mount record. It's not a contradiction. Uh, there's nothing earth-shattering about, oh, the words uh, in heaven are missing, right? It's just Father. Matthew had our Father which art in heaven. This is just simply Father. So, do we panic? <laughs> do we somehow try to uh, find a flaw or find, uh, you know, is, is, is Luke as an author, does Luke deny the heavenly domain of God the Father? Not at all. Luke does not for a moment deny the heavenly domain of God the Father. But that was not what Luke recorded as in this instance uh, was the message the Lord gave to this disciple on this occasion in the Perean ministry. So the Lord repeated numerous discourses to various groups of disciples at different stages of his ministry. So we have no problem with that. All right, we look at this certain disciple in her point two. We don't know who he was. We don't know how long he'd been a disciple. All we, and we're not even told his name. We're just told it was a certain disciple. We can call him Tis, T-I-S. That's the Greek word for a certain one in the masculine singular gender. So here's Tis, a certain one, a certain disciple. And he wants to know how to pray. Now, he was familiar with the baptizer's ministry. He'd heard about it, but he was not a part of it. He had heard about it, but was not a part of it. See, it's like uh, so many instances that, that happen when uh, authors I've read or ministries I've heard of or different things like that. All the books in my library by uh, Ironside or by uh, different pastors from years gone by or uh, uh, the books in my library in uh, the book of Romans, for example, by Donald Gray Barnhouse and things like that. And then I come face to face with a person to say, you know what, I... I, I heard Donald Gray Barnhouse live one time, or I used to hear him on the radio, and you'd say, oh, wow, really? Tell me about that. What was that like? Tell me about that. What were those days like? And, and I just see so much of that here in this instance. Teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Be like, wow, you know, I heard that back when John the Baptist had his ministry going, he really, really taught his disciples about prayer. That was a, that was a pinnacle, see, It'd be like someone coming in here and learning, oh, wow, you learned under Ralph Braun? Really? Well, teach, me, teach us about God the Father like Ralph Braun used to teach about God the Father. Right? You understand the relationship there? And you go, boy, let me tell you about that. So we have some of this. And we don't know a whole lot about this disciple, but I think we can glean at least this much uh, about it. We also know that he was not present for the Sermon on the Mount or he already would have had this teaching. This certain disciple was not present for the Sermon on the Mount. Or he would not have required this uh, uh, disciple's prayer outline. He would have had it back then in Matthew chapter 6. So chances are he's a new believer. Or at least if he's an old believer, he's new as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a student of Jesus Christ. And that's uh, some of the things you've got to deal with in any local church ministry. You've got folks that have been here a longer period of time, folks that have been here not so long a period of time. And you can't just assume that uh, uh, they had the teaching back when it was given. Say, well, say, well, we covered that in Through the Bible series. Well, yeah, but that was 2002. I wasn't here for Through the Bible series. Oh. So, uh, again, he says, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, quit wasting my time. Just go download it off the website. Oh, no, Jesus didn't say that. Okay. He patiently taught 
again and again and again and again. And that's the neat thing about repetition is that it doesn't kill anybody. It doesn't hurt. And it doesn't matter if you've had basics ten times or 110 times. Get them again. Say, get them again. Remind yourself. You pick up something you didn't know before or something that you knew but you forgot about. Something you knew but you hadn't been using much of lately. And you go, oh yeah, I really should be making more application on that. The last thing you need to do is just sit there all arrogantly and say, oh, well, I don't need to hear basics again. I'm too good for that. I know know too much. Now, if you've got that kind of arrogant attitude, you need basics. (laughs) All right. So this is the certain disciple. Point three, then. The prayer given here is shorter than Matthew's recorded Sermon on the Mount prayer. But it does convey the same general outline, the same general pattern. In other words, the elements that are consistent are in the same order and in the same um, the same uh, emphasis there. And if it helps you to put them all with A's, then put them all with A's. Get a little bit of alliteration there to help you recall. Adoration. Adoration. Do we have adoration in our prayers? Or are we so selfish in our prayers that we don't take time to adore the one who is worthy? Adoration. Our Father, hallowed be Thy name. And just celebrate how great our Father is. And uh, see if we can go beyond the selfishness of just simply the gimme, gimme, gimme prayers that the baby is accustomed to. Adoration before the Heavenly Father. Just spend an entire... Look at the Psalms that don't really ask for much of anything. They're just so busy praising God for who He is and what He's done. Adoration before the Heavenly Father. Anticipation of His coming kingdom. Anticipation of His coming kingdom. Recognizing that... uh, And maybe again, before all your gimme, gimme, gimme demands and, and so forth, recognizing that His kingdom is coming and today might be the day. Recognizing that He has a plan from Alpha to Omega. That's where our PMW classes are going to be a big benefit for you in the next few weeks. Uh, recognizing that this day is a part of his plan from Alpha to Omega to glorify Jesus Christ. Anticipate his coming kingdom. Recognize what his plan is today, what his plan is headed for. Finally, assent to his will. Your will be done. (laughs) Recognizing that uh, you're not stomping your foot and getting your way and changing his mind about what he wants to do. It's not what prayer is. Acceptance of His daily provision. Give us this day our daily bread, recognizing that each day we have need. We have physical needs, we have earthly needs, we have spiritual needs. And uh, if you really take the time to go through Sermon on the Mount, you find out there's the spiritual needs that should be coming first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I've got a book in my library, and you know what? Now I can't remember which one it was. Uh, and I guess it doesn't matter which one it was, but it's a book... A Christian book with a Christian author, pastor, I imagine, a pastor that wrote it or a scholar that wrote it. But anyway, the, the, the preface to the book, the foreword to the book, the very first page, uh, the author's preface basically says, um, if you have not yet spent time in the Word of God today, then close this book. <laughs> Go read your Bible. If you have read the Word of God today and you spent time in the Word of God, then okay, then thank you for buying this book. You can read some of it. <laughs> I've never read anything. Do you know the book I'm talking about? I've never read anything like that before. But this author was the, pre- the front page, the splash page, the preface of his book. He said, if you've not taken the time yet today to read your Bible, 
go read that instead. Shut this book right now. <laughs> That's a pretty good priority system. And now I've now got to reread every book in my library probably or just scan the prefaces and figure out which book that was. No, I got a kind of a good idea. I know it was. I got a pretty good idea. Whatever book it was, it was one that I'd loaned to Gary not too long ago. He read it too, and he also liked the preface to that book. Acceptance of his daily provision. What has he provided? And it's beyond the earthly needs, beyond the food, beyond the clothing. God knows we need those things. That's just temporal life. He also knows we need the Word of God to sustain us. We need armor. We need uh, weaponry. We need equipping for the angelic conflict. We need uh, to fulfill our work assignment to glorify Jesus Christ. Because not only are we one day closer to glory, God the Father is one day closer to when He's going to provide that maximum glory to His Son. He's on a timetable too. Do you ever think about that? He's got stuff to do and a finite time to do it. And even worse than us, he knows what that timetable is. <laughs> so he knows how short it is and how much we need to get accomplished on a daily basis. So acceptance of his daily provision, awareness of his forgiveness, awareness of his forgiveness and our own attitude towards others when we're not forgiving in our own mindset. Prayer is wonderful if we can at least use the prayer time to reorient to the forgiveness we've received. Each time we go to the Father in prayer, each time we say, Dear Heavenly Father, or Most Gracious Heavenly Father, or Almighty Father, whatever you're used to, uh, Abba Father, whatever you start your prayers with, um, use that as the opportunity to acknowledge the fact that you don't deserve to even have such access. Who am I to turn my thoughts to the sovereign God of the universe? And have him pay attention to what I'm asking for, what I'm discussing. And finally, abstinence from evil. The closing prayer, both in the Matthew record and the Luke record. You think, well, why isn't this kind of obvious? Why do we have to end with lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil? What, what is, I mean, that should just kind of go without saying. So why is it said? And why is it placed as a pattern for infant prayers, for baby prayers, for brand new believers to daily be mindful of how easy that snare is that can easily entangle us? Well, I think you see it for what it is. You also have it. It's why people wonder, well, why is that the last verse of 1 John? What's going on there? Guard yourself from idols. Flee from evil. These constant, constant reminders. All right. In verses 5 through 8... Under point four, this pattern that we have, the disciples' prayer outline, is going to be expanded a bit. Jesus expanded his prayer discourse with a parable. He expanded the prayer discourse with a parable. Now, this is unique to Luke. This story, this parable, these verses here is not in the Matthew record. It's not in the Sermon on the Mount. See, So even if you've heard it before, there's going to be something new next time around. Even if you think, well, I know everything there is to know about that particular doctrine. You'd be surprised what gets added and the next time it gets developed. What gets uh, featured the next time you go through it. Because you're, you're faced with testing right now, circumstances. There's things going on in your life that weren't going on in your life the previous time you had this doctrine. The previous two times. The previous ten times. What are the current situations of testing like? And, and just understand that that's going to bring any doctrinal study to a greater focus based on what you're going through at the time. So we have an expansion 
unique material in 5 through 8 that's not found in the Sermon on the Mount record in Matthew. All right, well, let's look at it, uh, verses 5 through 8. Then he said to them, suppose, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, do not bother me. And we're going to address, we're going to go through the nitty gritty on this in some degree here. But just that first, do not bother me, I find quite interesting. Because that's not what we typically associate the response in terms of prayer. We're supposed to boldly approach the throne of grace. If any of you lacks, let him go to God who gives to all generously and without reproach. See, if you believe the book of James, I believe the book of James. That means we go to prayer and he gives generously without reproach. God never says, do not bother me. God never says that. But in this parable, this is the response of the neighbor. And so even though what we have here is a pattern of prayer, and we have uh, the obnoxious neighbor and the, uh, and the, the, the one being offended, we have, uh, we have two characters in this story. And in the parable, we're learning some principles of shamelessness. And, uh, or you might have confidence in, in your translations. But we'll be, uh, we'll be examining these principles and seeing them for what they are. They're portraying a picture in the parable. And so hopefully we'll understand that. Even though this character says, do not bother me, God will never do that. And I hope we understand that. All right. So, uh, anyway, let me back up again. Um, you got a friend and uh, you're going to go to him at midnight because another friend who's evidently a friend of yours, but not the neighbor. Anyway, um, we'll talk about who all these friends are and if they really are friends, you know, um, (laughs) we'll discuss that here in a moment. Okay. So anyway, knock, knock, knock. It's midnight. Wake up. Um, I have a problem. And because I have a problem, you need to do something about it. (laughs) <laughs> okay, you see where this is going? And yet Jesus is using this as a lesson on prayer. And I know, I don't have to see a show of hands, because I know we've all done this. We don't go knock, knock, knock. We go, dear Heavenly Father, I have a problem. And you need to do something about it. <laughs> All right. And that's our pattern. And it's a beautiful pattern. And I hope we'll start to appreciate it for what it is. All right. So here's my problem. Here's what you're going to do to bail me out, to help me make provision in ways I cannot do. So uh, from inside, he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up to give you anything. So three statements that he makes. After he says, do not bother me. He says, the door has already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up to give you anything. Three reasons or three expansions on do not bother me. Uh, So if you include that, then there's four statements here. But then the interesting thing. After telling him four times, go away. And you wonder, did this come in a sequence? In other words, was it, do not bother me. The door has already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up to give you anything. Was it over and over and over again? I mean, how obnoxious was this guy? I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, 
friendship does not motivate the provision. I'm getting ahead of myself in my notes because you're going to see that on the screen. You're going to write that down in your paper and you're going to think about it. And you're going to say, that's insane. The pastor doesn't know what he's talking about. Friendship is not the motivation for the provision. I'll give you something to think about. Even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his obnoxious shamelessness or persistence. Okay. I think the modern English text of persistence is used because for whatever reason, publishers don't want to use shameless uh, obnoxiousness. And yet that's what it is. He will get up and give him as much as he needs. Friendship gives him zip. Nothing. Zero. Go away. I'm in bed. Friendship provides nothing. Shamelessness motivates not just one thing, not just a couple things, everything, whatever he needs, blank check. Everything. So that's verse 8. And uh, again, the pastor's not out of his mind. He's just reading verse 8. Friendship provides nothing. Shamelessness provides it all. Shamelessness provides it all. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And as you ask, you must be shameless. As you seek, you must be shameless. As you knock, you must be shameless. Totally shameless in your approach to God the Father. Say, well, how do I be shameless? That's what we're going to talk about. (laughs) All right, what do we got? First of all, we want to see some principles here. Prayer is not based on rapport friendship. Prayer is not based on rapport friendship. I believe prayer will help develop the rapport friendship. But rapport friendship is not the basis for which you can pray in the first place or that you can receive the uh, mercy or find grace to help in time of need. It's not based on rapport friendship. Any more than the forgiveness of your sins is based on rapport friendship. It's based on God's faithfulness. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He does so because that's what's consistent with his nature, with his character. So too, in terms of our prayer provision, God is the provider. That's who he is. That's what he does. Prayer is not based on rapport friendship. I want to stress this simply because I think that there is an attitude that never gets taught, but sometimes it gets applied. People use it. And that is a believer who is reluctant to pray, reluctant to ask for anything, reluctant to make his request known. Why? Because they feel or believe or somehow sense that they are not uh, intimate with the Lord. They're not worthy in their mind that. Mm, you know, I, I I haven't been walking very well in, in the light here lately. Um, I haven't been really faithful. I really haven't been in the Word. I haven't been walking. Yeah, I got this carnality problem. You know, I, I probably shouldn't ask for a whole lot in, in my prayers here. I don't think I've... Uh, yeah, you know what? I 
my Christian walk is not really going very well these days, I probably ought to just not bother God very much with my prayers. He's not going to listen to me anyway. You know how insane that is? <laughs> and yet, how many believers do it? What underlies that, though, is what? The, the, the think it through. I mean, just take it to its furthest extent. What you're saying is, is that if you're, the, if you're a better Christian, you can, uh, you'll, you can have better prayers, or you can ask for more, or you can, uh, that your right to be at the throne of grace is, is dependent on how good you're walking at the moment. In other words, it's a prayer life of works. You're, not, you're saved by grace, but your prayer life depends on how good you're doing, how well you're doing. Just stop right there. That's why he's teaching this impudence parable. Because when it comes right down to it, no matter what you're doing or who you are, how well you're doing, how poorly you're doing on that relative scale of humanity, you're still an obnoxious neighbor knocking on the door. And that's what he's teaching here. We need to be shameless in our approach. Knocking on the door we have no business knocking on. Involving a family we have no business being a part of. But by grace we are a part of the family. Say, Because the reality is we're not outside bugging somebody else's family. The, the truth is we're in that family. We belong in that house when we go to the Father in prayer. So prayer is not based on rapport friendship. If there's ever a time that you find yourself hesitant to pray, stop. In fact, that ought to be a red flag. Why am I hesitant to pray? Evaluate. What's, what's keeping me from praying? What is it that's telling me that I, have no, I don't have a right to pray? I don't have an expectation to pray? I'm asking for too much? I'm, I'm, uh, why is it? I don't think he can handle it. I don't think I'm good enough for him to give me what I'm asking him for. Well, yeah, I'm a sinner. I don't deserve anything. So whatever he gives me is going to be grace anyway, so ask. <laughs> Go ahead and ask him. You don't deserve it. If you're going to limit things you're asking for in prayer to what you think you deserve, you're in the wrong approach to start with. You deserve the lake of fire, so get that out of your mind. Start praying. Start asking. All right, prayer is not based on rapport friendship. Point B, and here's where you, you start to see the different English translations and why modern publishers sometimes struggle. Successful requisition is obtained through, and I like the term shamelessness. Shamelessness. Even though both the New American Standard and the New King James preferred the persistence, I think they have actually fallen into the trap of using a later passage to interpret an earlier passage, and that's a mistake every time. Later on, in Luke, I think it's back in chapter 18, there's another parable, only in this case it's an unrighteous judge and it's a widow. And that is a parable on persistence. That is a parable that speaks of wearing me out, see, where the unrighteous judge says, she's bothering me, she's continuously coming, she will wear me out. And with the continuous coming and the wearing out in that context, in that application of the parable from chapter 18, 
the principle is one of persistence. And we want to be persistent in our prayers. We're going to teach persistent prayers when we teach the parable from chapter 18. But to come back now to chapter 11 and try to read a later passage into an earlier passage is a, is a faulty hermeneutic any time you try it. The issue in chapter 11 is not persistence, it's shamelessness. It's anaidea, anaidea, A-N-A-I-D-E-I-A, anaidea, number 335 in the Strong's Index, anaidea. Fascinating term, in particular when you understand idea, the positive form. Shame. When you understand that in the Greek way of thinking, this was a pinnacle. You wanted to know your place in the universe, your place in the city, your place in the society, your place in the world. So whether uh, if you were a Greek thinker, philosopher, uh, if your outlook on the cosmos was Greek, then you had a part, you had a place a place in the polis, or the city, a place in the tribe, a place in the cosmos, a place in the world, a place... And when you violated your place, when you lost your honor, when you lost your shame, it was a horrible, horrible thing. And so the term anaidea was well known in the day and age in which this was composed. Darby translated it as shamelessness. Uh, a couple of other... Modern text, uh, the uh, contemporary English version uses shamelessness. The Good News translation uses shamelessness. And uh, by and large, I'm not a big fan of the CEV or the GNT, but I think in this instance they, they got the flavor of Onidea very well. King James had importunity, importunity, which in the 17th century was spot on. <laughs> One importunity. The uh, the audacity of this guy knocking on the door at midnight. Who does he think he is? Midnight? Are you kidding me? Come back tomorrow. Or don't even come tonight. Tomorrow morning should be the first time the guy goes next door and, and knocks on his neighbor's door. So uh, King James, the uh, American Standard Version, that's the original ASV, uh, the RSV, Revised Standard, Young's Literal Translation, all used importunity. Uh, the ESV has gotten pretty popular lately. I didn't realize the uh, English Standard Version uses impudence. Kind of a good term, impudence. Uh, NIV boldness, I'm not thrilled with that. As I already mentioned, um, most of the modern texts use persistence. From the New Revised Standard, New King James, New American Standard, the Holman, ISV, and TLB all use persistence. The Net Bible adds the word sheer on top of it, sheer persistence. But the New Living Translation has shameless persistence. Anyway, I like the reference of shamelessness because of the um, the uh, use of it. In, uh, uh, this is the only place, by the way, in all the New Testament where the word anidea occurs. It's a hapax legomenos, the only passage, the only verse in 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 uh, Matthew to Revelation that has anidea. It's a hapax legomena, and the Septuagint barely uses it either. Septuagint only has uh, one instance of it, and it's not in a canonical book. Septuagint uses it from a, uh, one of the uh, apocryphal books that, that the Septuagint contains. Well, what is this 
impudence, this shamelessness. There were a couple of uses in... In fact, did I pull this up for you last time? I don't remember. It's been three weeks now. I can show you very quickly and then we can move on. Because I've got ten things I want to tell you about this shamelessness. From verse 8. There it is. So he says, Lego humin, I say to you, Akai, u dose auto, he will not give to him, uh, will not get up and give to him because uh, he is his friend. He is his philos, friend. But because of his shamelessness, he will give him all things. It will work all things. All right. Um, there were two places I thought where, like I say, in the New Testament, that's the only spot. In the Septuagint, one spot in the book of Sirach. A woman, if she maintain her husband, is full of anger, impudence, and much reproach. That was apocryphal wisdom from four centuries before Christ. Anyway, it's not scripture. Let's move on. Uh, Philo doesn't use it at all. Josephus uses it. All right, Josephus uses it. And it's interesting, when he's using it, he's uh, criticizing, and, and every time Josephus uses it, it's rendered impudence. Time and time and time again, it's impudence. The absolute gall. The gall and the audacity of somebody. Who do they think they are? What do they think they're doing? And... Um, Typically, and historians are great for this, when they're disputing conclusions that other historians have come to. So I cannot but wonder at thy impudence when thou hast the assurance to say that thou hast better related these affairs than have all the others that have written about them. Who do you think you are? Josephus says, I was an eyewitness. He was a Roman general. He was on hand for the, for the different things. Why do I describe the shameless impudence that the famine brought on men? Against Apion here, he says, uh, And would not a man now laugh at this fellow's trifling, or rather hate his impudence in writing thus? Uh, we must, it seems, take it for granted that all these 110,000 men must have had <laughs> these buboes. He's talking about Manetho, the, uh, the Egyptian historian, and uh, who was writing about the origin for the Sabbath day and what, why it was that the Jews all rested on that seventh day. Yeah, well, in the, when the Jews had traveled six days' journey, they had buboes on their groins. And on, the, on this account, it was they rested on the seventh day. <laughs> we just laugh, right? And Josephus was livid. Josephus was absolutely livid, as I think any Pharisee would. I say, you know, I think there's actually a significance to the Sabbath day, uh, and it's not what you're, you're writing about there. Anyway. Bubonos, if you want to learn the Greek word for bubos. All right. Anyway, uh, antiquities, wars of the Jews. It's a pretty common term. The um, Bring up the lexicon here. It goes all the way back to Homer. Again, the term that the Greeks uh, centered on was this term here, eidos. A-I-D-O-S, eidos. 
uh, for respect, self-respect, that uh, as you conducted your life, this is a, a pagan Greek way of thinking in their philosophies, but you want to conduct your way of life so that you maintain your own self-respect, your own sense of propriety and honor and right and so forth. If you lack that, then you are shameless. You have no sensitivity or about right and wrong and morals and conventions and standards and anything. You're just a thoughtless, insensitive, shameless, impudent Neanderthal, right? That's what we're dealing with. It's not a parable on persistence. It's a parable on shamelessness. This guy, and I'm going I'm to give you ten steps for why this guy is a thoughtless goon, and yet Jesus Christ says, that's you when you pray, and that's okay. That's a lot of fun. All right. Shameless impudence rightly describes our prayer to God the Father. Shameless impudence rightly describes our prayer to God the Father. We need to become shameless in our prayers. Shameless impudence rightly describes our prayer to God the Father. So let's look at these verses again. Back up to verse 5. Suppose one of you any one of you, because it's all of you at one particular time or another. Suppose one of you has a friend. And we're going to focus on who these friends are because, um, well, you'll see here in a moment. But you've got a friend who shows up at midnight. And, uh, and so then you go to your neighbor who you also call friend. But clearly, one friend is more important than the other friend. What do we start with? You have a one-way friendship with more important friends. So the first element of this shameless impudence, point one, one-way friendship with more important friends. You have verse 5 with verse 8. And then you relate it back to verse 6. And you understand that he says, oh, a friend of mine has come to me from a journey. Well, okay, that's your friend. He's not the neighbor's friend. He doesn't say a friend of ours or a friend of yours. He's knocking on the door and the guy inside says, you know what, it's a friend of mine. Not your friend. He wasn't the friend of the man inside the door. He was a friend of the man outside the door. And that, that boy, that takes you in all kinds of directions, doesn't it? Friendships that you have apart from the friendships that God the Father has. So we have a one-way friendship. And even though in verse 5 he knocks on the neighbor and says, Friend, lend me three loaves. Uh, we're told in verse 8, he's not his friend. He didn't even have the philo, uh, the philos, phileo love for the neighbor. He's not going to give him anything for a philos friendship. He doesn't have philos friendship. He's not his friend. Remember, philos requires the, the reciprocal rapport. And waking a guy up at midnight <laughs> doesn't contribute to that. Alright, so you got one-way friendship. Verse 5, verse 8. With more important friends. Clearly, this neighbor here made the priority, prioritized uh, the situation, and said uh, this friend that came from a journey is more important 
It's more important that we feed him something right here, right now, tonight. Can't even wait till morning. And his hospitality is more important than the neighbor's sleep, than the neighbor's family, than the neighbor's priorities. One-way friendship with more important friends. And it's interesting. We, uh, in our impudence, when we think about our relationship with God, how often does it become one way? How often? I mean, it shouldn't be, ultimately, but in a lot of ways it has to be when it comes to provision of need. Scripture says God has no need. We cannot feed Him. We cannot provide for Him. We cannot give Him anything that He requires. He has what He requires. He is the I Am, the self-consistent, the eternal being. So when it comes to provision, it's entirely one way. We have the need, and it says, My God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I was listening to John Eichmann tape this week that addressed that verse pretty thoroughly because so many believers are confused. They think it's government shall supply all my need. <laughs> and Scripture says, My God shall supply all my need. All right, so we have one-way friendship with more important friends. And it's interesting, in the adolescent, impudent approach, in the adolescent, impudent approach, the baby prayer of uh, pattern uh, formulas is two through four. The impudence is the adolescent approach. And then by the time you get to ask, seek, and knock, you've entered into the mature realms of your prayer life. So this chapter gives us baby, adolescent, mature prayer life in the segments of, of what we're looking at here. So in the adolescent impudent prayers, we are observing a one-way friendship with more important friends. In other words, a believer who goes to the Father in prayer when he thinks about it, when he needs it, when um, he's tried everything else and nothing else is working. All right. But still, this adolescent prayer focus does not take into account what the Father might be doing. It's entirely oriented on what you've got going on. Your schedule, your need, your timetable, your problems. What, whatever this, the, the father's doing, you haven't even thought about that. What's the father's family doing? Never even thought about that. So you'll see this here. A second feature. Immediate satisfaction demanded Immediate satisfaction demanded. It's a feature of this prayer pattern, verse 5. Immediate satisfaction, or satisfaction, if you want to misspell it. Immediate satisfaction demanded. Type was in the Word document also. How about that? It's a baby approach to prayer. It's also an adolescent approach to prayer. You probably notice that if you know any earthly adolescents, they they pretty well live in the immediate, here and now, and uh, things that are needed are needed here and now. Immediate satisfaction demand. A more mature prayer life, of course, understands that it's the Father's timetable, not your timetable. A thousand years are as a day. A day is as a thousand years. 
you understand the priorities, but you're also willing to set aside your will, not my will, but thine be done. And that the perfect provision will come at the perfect time in the perfect way for the perfect reasons. And uh, in different aspects of it there. So we have uh, immediate satisfaction demanded. So um, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight. Why in the world? Can't this wait until morning? (laughs) No, it can't wait. Because I have a problem and I want my problems to go away right now. If this thing lingers till, till morning, that's too long. I'm too good for that. I deserve better than that. I shouldn't have to struggle from midnight till morning. Are you kidding? Who does God think I am? I want my prayers answered now. Immediate satisfaction demanded. Thirdly, specific quantities expected. Specific quantities expected. Lend me three loaves. Not, do you have any loaves? How many loaves do you have? Um, May I borrow a loaf? Um, No, this is a specific quantity. I need three loaves. Why do I need three loaves? Because I said I do. (laughs) Okay. Maybe the father says you only need two loaves. You only need one loaf. Maybe the father says you need 12 loaves. All right. The uh, the quantity is that is that our function to determine? <laughs> Father provides. He knows what we need before we even ask. Give us this day our daily bread doesn't say how much that ought to be. You're trusting in him for his provision, the right timing, the right amount, the right details and everything else. And when he does provide, you say thank you, Father, for the loaf, for the two loaves, for the three and a half loaves, for the 12 loaves, whatever it is. Now, the adolescent approach, the impudent approach, got it all figured out. Because your plan calls for three loaves, and it calls for it right now. In your infinite wisdom, or finite wisdom. You you caught the tongue-in-cheek aspect on this? Because if this guy really had a whole lot of wisdom... um, He would have had the loaves already. (laughs) Why was his kitchen bare? Where was his preparation ahead of time? Why did he have no loaves? Was he not even expecting this friend? All right. There's more questions than answers, I think, on some of the details here. We'll just take it for what it is. All right. What else do we have? Arrogant and empty promises of repayment. Arrogant. And empty promises of repayment. (laughs) Also, verse 5. Lend me three loaves. You know, I, I find this remarkable. When believers start to bargain with God... About, you know, uh, get me out of this scrape, God, and I'll dedicate my life. Right? I'll serve you. Or or whatever. The guy that was shipwrecked and swimming to shore and he's miles and miles out and he's praying, oh, save me, save me. And he's 
now he's 10 miles and he's praying and promising this. He's five miles out, promising, praying. He gets a mile out, he's promising, praying this. He gets within sight of the shore. Now he's about 20 feet from the shore and he starts to relax. Oh, I can make it from here. <laughs> anyway, it's a funny story. I don't tell it very well, but it's a, it's a funny story. And then, of course, when he gets that close, now he's, he doesn't need God quite as much as he needed when he was way out there, right? So he loses his, uh, what he's promising God he's going to do and so forth and and then and then he drowns right there 20 feet from the shore a shark eats him or so you can end the story in whatever gruesome fashion you like but still it makes the point that how ludicrous is it for a finite being to promise God he's going to pay him back lend me like God's a librarian or something you're going to borrow God's a giver he gives without reproach, liberally, we're told, or generously, we're told, without reproach. So, um, lend me three loaves. What kind of prayer is that? Ah, goodness, there's so much more here. There's ten of these all together, and we're almost out of time. Um, failure to prepare. A friend of mine has come to me from a journey. I have nothing to set before him. You know, what's interesting is, um, I don't know, you can't really quantify it maybe, but whatever percentage of your prayers or requests or needs or struggles would uh, be different had you prepared better, <laughs> right? Had you, uh, what, what, what adjustments would there be to your prayer life today if in times past, uh, better choices had been made. Okay. And this is just in the in the brutal reality of it. God never brings it up, by the way. He gives it all without reproach. So God never says, well, dummy, you, sh- you should have made a smarter choice. Okay. <laughs> and uh, a different thing. I, I, you know, a girl I knew that, that married an unbeliever. Well, you made a stupid choice, didn't you? And you knew it at the time. Knew it at the time you weren't supposed to marry an unbeliever. But, oh, well, you know, I can lead him to Christ. I can change him. and I'll be a good example. No, you're a terrible example because you disobeyed the scriptures when you married him. You told him that you didn't believe God's word was a priority. Anyway, that's, that's just me saying it. God never says that. He gives to all generously without reproach. But now think about it. Think about now a life being married to an unbeliever. And the conflict, the struggles, the discipline, the consequences, the prayer life. And none of those prayers would be there had a better decision been made in the past, right? Okay. So it's interesting, even a failure to prepare or previous wrong choices, previous mistakes, dumb things we do are going to affect our prayer life. And you know something? In spite of all that, our Father still provides. Isn't that wonderful? Because none of those dumb choices we made caught him off guard. And it didn't. he knew about him ahead of time. And he still redeemed us. He sent his son anyway. It's, it's the glorious things of grace that just leave you speechless. Because if you were God, you wouldn't provide the way God provides. 
You'd look at that person and say, well, dummy, why don't you have any of your own loaves? You, you failed to prepare. You, uh, you made your bed, you can lie in it. Huh. God doesn't do that. It's an interesting aspect of what we see here. And there's more. This is only half. We've only gone through half of this guy's impudence. And I think when we study our own approach in prayer, we only know the fringes of our own impudence. And yet beyond it all, we approach boldly to that throne of grace. Boldly. Like we have every right to belong there because the truth is, you know what the truth is? I'm going to leave you with this because I'm out of time. The truth is, we're not outside on that door knocking. We're the children inside the house sleeping, resting in our Father's faithful provision. That's where we belong. We are family. So when we understand this parable, we can start to see some amazing things. And if we start to see some baby elements of our prayer, we can identify them and maybe work in those areas and grow beyond it. If we start to see some adolescent aspects of our prayers, all right, recognize that. Say, okay, you know what? I should, I should work on that. I should develop a, a more mature prayer life. That's what the Father truly wants. Then I can get to the stage of asking, seeking, and knocking and start making the mature application of a prayer because the fervent, effectual prayers of a righteous man availeth much. At least according to a book that I've keep hearing about. I'm going to teach the book of James someday, but someday. Well, that's half of it. We'll have points 6 through 10 next week. Again, there's no ladies' prayer next week, but there will be class. We will have class at 10 o'clock. So we'll come back to the impudent prayers, the shameless impudence, and uh, and bring this, uh, I don't know, one more session maybe, bring this class to a close, one, maybe two. We'll see. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the truth of your word, for your faithfulness. Thank you for uh, every way that you prove yourself faithful in our lives. Thank you for um, watching over us. Thank you for shepherding us. Thank you for being faithful when you watch us make stupid choices. Thank you for uh, not holding it against us when we come to you in prayer. Father, it's just uh, a delight to be called by your grace, to be provided all things necessary for life and godliness, to be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So, Father, we praise you. We celebrate who you are and what you've done through the gift of your Son. We thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen.